Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Pleasure Pilgrim by Ella Darcy. One. Campbell was on his way to Schloss Altenau for a second quiet season with his work. He had spent three profitable months there a year ago, and now he was devoutly hoping for a repetition of that good fortune. His thoughts outran the train, and long before his arrival at the Hamelin railway station, he was enjoying his welcome by the Ritterhausens, was revelling in the ease and comfort of the old castle, and was contrasting the pleasures of his homecoming for he looked upon Schloss Altenau as a sort of temporary home with his recent cheerless experiences of lodging houses in London, hotels in Berlin, and strange indifferent faces everywhere. He thought with a special satisfaction of the mains and of the good talks Maine and he would have together late at night before the great fire in the hall after the rest of the household had gone to bed. He blessed the adverse circumstances which had turned Schloss Altenau into a boarding-house and had reduced the Freiherr Ritterhausen to eke out his shrunken revenues by the reception as paying guests of English and American pleasure pilgrims. He rubbed the blurred window-pane with the fringed end of the strap hanging from it and in the snow-covered landscape reeling towards him began to recognise objects that were familiar. Hamelin could not be far off. In another ten minutes the train came to a standstill. He stepped down from the overheated atmosphere of his compartment into the cold, bright February afternoon, and through the open station doors saw one of the Ritterhausen carriages awaiting him with Gottlieb in his second-best livery on the box. Gottlieb showed every reasonable consideration for the Baron's borders, but he had various methods of marking his sense of the immense abyss separating them from the family. The use of his second-best livery was one of these methods. Nevertheless, he turned a friendly German eye up to Campbell, and in response to his cordial Guten Tag, Gottlieb, wie geht's, und die Herrschaften, expressed his pleasure at seeing the young man back again. While Campbell stood on the top of the steps that led down to the carriage and the platz, looking after the collection of his luggage and its bestowal by Gottlieb's side, he became of two persons, ladies, advancing towards him from the direction of the Wartsaal. It was surprising to see anyone at any time in Hamelin Station. It was still more surprising when one of these ladies addressed him by name. You are a Mr. Campbell, are you not? she said. We have been waiting for you to go back in the carriage together. When we found this morning that there was only half an hour between your train and ours, I told the Baroness it would be perfectly absurd to send to the station twice. I hope you won't mind our company. The first impression Campbell received was of the magnificent apparel of the lady before him. It would have been noticeable in Paris or Vienna. It was extravagant here. Next he perceived that the face beneath the upstanding feathers and the curving hat-brim was that of so very young a girl as to make the furs and velvets seem more incongruous still. But the incongruity vanished with the intonation of her first phrase which told him she was an American. He had no standards for American dress or manners. It was clear that the speaker and her companion were inmates of the Schloss. Campbell bowed and murmured the pleasure he did not feel. A true Briton, he was intolerably shy, 
and his heart sank at the prospect of a three-mile drive with two strangers who evidently had the advantage of knowing all about him, while he was in ignorance of their very names. As he took his place opposite to them in the carriage, he unconsciously assumed a cold, blank stare, pulling nervously at his moustache, as was his habit in moments of discomposure. Had his companions been British also, the ordeal of the drive would certainly have been a terrible one. Had his companions been British also, the ordeal of the drive would certainly have been a terrible one, but these young American girls showed no sense of embarrassment whatever. We've just come back from Hanover, said the one who had already spoken to him. I go over once a week for a singing lesson, and my little sister comes along to take care of me. She turned a narrow smiling glance from Campbell to her little sister, and then back to Campbell again. She had red hair, freckles on her nose, and the most singular eyes he had ever seen, slit-like eyes set obliquely in her head, Chinese fashion. Yes, a luli requires a great deal of taking care of, assented the little sister, sedately, though the way in which she said it seemed to imply something less simple than the words themselves. The speaker bore no resemblance to Luli. She was smaller, thinner, paler. Her features were straight, a trifle peaked, her skin sallow, her hair of a nondescript brown. She was much less gorgeously dressed. There was even a suggestion of shabbiness in her attire, though sundry isolated details of it were handsome too. She was also much less young, or so at any rate Campbell began by pronouncing her. Yet presently he wavered. She had a face that defied you to fix her age. Campbell never fixed it to his own satisfaction, but veered in the course of that drive, as he was destined to do during the next few weeks, from point to point up and down the scale between eighteen and thirty-five. She wore a spotted veil and beneath it a pince-nez, the lenses of which did something to temper the immense amount of humorous meaning which lurked in her gaze. When her pale, prominent eyes met Campbell's, it seemed to the young man that they were full of eagerness to add something at his expense to the stores of information they had already garnered up. They chilled him with misgivings. There was more comfort to be found in her sister's shifting red-brown glances. Hanover is a long way to go for lessons, he observed, forcing himself to be conversational. I, I used to go myself about once a week when I first came to Schloss Altenau for tobacco or notepaper or to get my hair cut. But later on I did without or contented myself with what Hamlin or even the village could offer me. Nanny and I, said the young girl, men only to stay a week at Altenau on our way to Hanover, where we were going to pass the winter. But the castle is just too lovely for anything, she added softly. She raised her eyelids the least little bit as she looked at him, and such a warm and friendly gaze shot out that Campbell was suddenly thrilled. Was she pretty after all? He glanced at Nanny. She, at least, was indubitably plain. It's the very first time we've ever stayed in a castle, Luli went on. And we're going to remain right along now until we go home in the spring. Just imagine living in a house with a real moat and a drawbridge and a riddersal. And suits of armor that have been actually worn in battle. And, oh, that delightful iron collar and chain. You remember it, Mr. Campbell. It hangs right close to the gateway on the courtyard side. And you know, in old days, the Ritterhausens used to use it for the punishment of their serfs. There are horrible stories connected with it. Mr. Maine can tell you them. But just think of being chained up there like a dog, so wonderfully picturesque. 
For the spectator, perhaps, said Campbell, smiling. I doubt if the victim appreciated the picturesque aspect of the case. With this, Luli disagreed. Oh, I think he must have been interested, she said. It must have made him feel so absolutely part and parcel of the Middle Ages. I persuaded Mr. Maine to fix a collar around my neck the other day, and though it was very uncomfortable, and I had to stand on tiptoe, it seemed to me that all at once the courtyard was filled with knights in armor, and crusaders and palmers and things, and there were flags flying and trumpets sounding, and all the dead and gone Ritterhausens had come down from their picture frames and were walking about in brocaded gowns and lace ruffles. It seemed to require a good deal of persuasion to get Mr. Maine to unfix the collar again, said the little sister. How at last did you manage it? But Luli replied irrelevantly. And the Ritterhausens are such perfectly lovely people, aren't they, Mr. Campbell? The old baron is a perfect dear. He has such a grand manner. When he kisses my hand, I feel nothing less than a princess. And the baroness is such a funny, busy, delicious little round ball of a thing. And she's always playing bagatelle, isn't she, or else cutting up skeins of wool for carpet-making. She meditated a moment. Some people always are cutting things up in order to join them together again, she announced in her fresh, drawling little voice. And some people cut things up and leave other people to do all the reparation, commented the little sister enigmatically. And all this time the carriage had been rattling over the cobble-paved streets of the quaint medieval town where the houses stand so near together that you may shake hands with your opposite neighbour, where allegorical figures, strange birds and beasts are carved and painted over the windows and doors, and where to every distant sound you lean your ear to catch the fairy music of the Pied Piper, and at every street corner you look to see his tatterdemalion form with the frolicking children at his heels. When the Weser Bridge was crossed, beneath which the ice flows jostled and ground themselves together as they forced their way down the river, and the carriage was rolling smoothly along country roads between vacant, snow-decked fields. Campbell's embarrassment was wearing off. Now that he was getting accustomed to the girls, he found neither of them more inspiring. The red-haired one had a simple, childlike manner that was charming. Her strange little face, with its piquant irregularity of line, its warmth of colour, began to please him. What though her hair was red, the uncurled wisp which strayed across her white forehead was soft and alluring. He could see soft masses of it tucked up beneath her hat brim as she turned her head. When she suddenly lifted her red-brown lashes, those queer eyes of hers had a velvety softness too. Decidedly, she struck him as being pretty, in a peculiar way. He felt an immense succession of interest in her, it seemed to him that he was the discoverer of her possibilities. He didn't doubt that the rest of the world called her plain, or at least odd-looking. He at first had only seen the freckles on her nose, her oblique-set eyes. He wondered what she thought of herself, and how she appeared to Nanny. Probably as a very commonplace little girl. Sisters stand too close to see each other's qualities. She was too young to have had much opportunity of hearing flattering truths from strangers. And besides, the ordinary stranger would see nothing in her to call for flattering truths. Her charm was something subtle, out of the common, in defiance of all known rules of beauty. Campbell saw superiority in himself for recognising it, for formulating it, and he was not displeased to be aware 
that it would always remain caviar to the multitude. 2. I'm jolly glad to have you back, Main said, that same evening, when the rest of the boarders, having returned to their rooms, he and Campbell were lingering over the hall fire for a talk and smoke. I've missed you awfully, old chap, and the good times we used to have here. I've often meant to write to you, but you know how one shoves off letter-writing day after day till at last one is too ashamed of one's indolence to write at all. But tell me, you had a pleasant drive from Hamlin. What do you think of our young ladies? Those American girls, but they're charming, said Campbell with enthusiasm. The red-haired one is particularly charming. At this, Maine laughed so oddly that Campbell questioned him in surprise. Isn't she charming? My dear chap, said Maine. The red-haired one, as you call her, is the most remarkably charming young person I've ever met or read of. We've had a good many American girls here before now. You remember the good old Clamp family, of course. They were here in your time, I think. But we've never had anything like this Miss Luli Thayer. She is something altogether unique. Campbell was struck with the name Luli, Luli Thayer, he repeated. How pretty it is and full of his great discovery, he felt he must confide it to Maine, at least. Do you know, he went on, she is really very pretty too. I didn't think so at first, but after a bit I discovered that she is positively quite pretty, in an odd sort of way. Maine laughed again. Pretty, pretty, he echoed in derision. Why, lieber Gott in Himmel, where are your eyes? Pretty? The girl is beautiful. Gorgeously beautiful, every trait, every tint is incomplete, in absolute harmony with the whole. But the truth is, of course, we've all grown accustomed to the obvious, the commonplace, to violent contrasts, blue eyes, black eyebrows, yellow hair, the things that shout for recognition. You speak of Miss Thayer's hair as red. What other colour would you have with that warm, creamy skin? And then... What a red it is. It looks as though it had been steeped in red wine. Ah, what a good description, said Campbell appreciatively. That's just it. Steeped in red wine. And yet it's not so much her beauty, Maine continued. After all, one has met beautiful women before now. It's her wonderful generosity, her complaisance. She doesn't keep her good things to herself. She doesn't condemn you to admire them from a distance. How do you mean? Campbell asked, surprised again. Why, she's the most egregious little flirt I've ever met. And yet, she's not exactly a flirt either. I mean, she doesn't flirt in the ordinary way. She doesn't talk much or laugh or apparently make the least claims on masculine attention. And so all the women like her. I don't believe there's one except my wife who has an inkling as to her true character. The Baroness, as you know, never observes anything, Signor Dieu. If she knew the things I could tell her about Miss Lully, for I've had opportunities of studying her. You see, I'm a married man, and not in my first youth, out of the running altogether. The looker-on gets the best view of the game. But you, who are young and charming and already famous, we've had your book here, by the by, and there's good stuff in it. You're going to have no end of pleasant experiences. I can see she means to add you to her ninety and nine other spoils. I saw it from the way she looked at you over dinner. She always begins with those velvety red-brown glances. She began that way with March and Prendergast and Willie Anson and all the men we've had here since her arrival. 
The next thing she'll do will be to press your hand under the tablecloth. Oh, come, man, you're joking, cried Campbell, a little brusquely. He thought such jokes in bad taste. He had a high ideal of woman, an immense respect for her. He could not endure to hear her belittled even in jest. Miss Thayer is refined and charming. No girl of her class would do such things. What is her class? Who knows anything about her? All we know is that she and her uncanny little friend, her little sister, as she calls her, though they're no more sisters than you and I are, they're not even related. All we know is that she and Miss Dodge, that's the little sister's name, arrived here one memorable day last October from the Cron Prince Hotel at Valdec Piermont. By the by, it was the Clamps, I believe, who told her of the castle and the hotel acquaintances. You know how travelling Americans always cotton to each other. And we've picked up a few little biographical notes from her and Miss Dodge since. Some by Spiel, she's got a rich father somewhere away back in Michigan who supplies her with all the money she wants. And she's been travelling about since last May, Paris, Vienna, the Rhine, Dusseldorf, and so here. She must have had some rich experiences by Jove, for she's done everything. Cycled in Paris, you should see her in her cycling costume. She wears it when the Baroness takes her out shooting. She's an admirable shot, by the way, an accomplishment learned, I suppose, from some American cowboy. Then, in Berlin, she did a month's hospital nursing, and now she's studying the higher branches of the Terpsichorean art. You know she was in Hanover today. Did she tell you what she went for? Um, to take a singing lesson, said Campbell, remembering the reason she had given. A singing lesson? Do you sing with your legs? A dancing lesson, mein Lieber. A dancing lesson from the ballet master of the Hof Theater. She could deposit a kiss on your forehead with her foot, I don't doubt. I wonder if she can do the grand écart yet. And when Campbell, in astonishment, wondered why on earth she should wish to do such things, oh, to extend her opportunities, Maine explained, and to acquire fresh sensations. She's an adventurous, yes, an adventurous, but an end-of-the-century one. She doesn't travel for profit, but for pleasure. She has no desire to swindle her neighbour of dollars, but to amuse herself at his expense. And she's clever. She's read a good deal. She knows how to apply her reading to practical life. Thus she's learned from Herrick not to be coy, and from Shakespeare that sweet and twenty is the time for kissing and being kissed. She honours her masters in the observance. She was not in the least abashed when one day I suddenly came upon her teaching that damned idiot young Anson two new ways of kissing. Campbell's impression of the girl were readjusting themselves completely, but for the moment he was unconscious of the change. He only knew that he was partly angry, partly incredulous, and inclined to believe that Maine was chaffing him. But Miss Dodge, he objected, the little sister, she's older, old enough to look after her friend. Surely she couldn't allow a young girl placed in her charge to behave in such a way. Oh, that Dodge girl, said Maine contemptuously. Miss Thayer pays the whole shot, I understand, and Miss Dodge plays gooseberry, sheepdog, jackal, what you will. She finds a reward in the other's cast-off finery. The silk blouse she was wearing tonight, I've good reason for remembering, belonged to Miss Lully. For, during a brief season, I must tell you, my young lady had the caprice to show attentions to your humble servant. I suppose my being a married man lent me a factitious fascination, but I didn't see it. That kind of girl doesn't appeal to me. So she employed Miss Dodge to do a little active canvassing. It was really too funny. 
I was coming in one day after a walk in the woods, and my wife was trimming bonnets or had neuralgia or something. Anyhow, I was alone, and Miss Dodge contrived to waylay me in the middle of the courtyard. Don't you find it very dull, walking all by yourself? She asked me, and then blinking up in her strange little short-sighted way. She's really the weirdest little creature. Why don't you make love to Luli? she said. You'd find her very charming. It took me a minute or two to recover presence of mind enough to ask her whether Miss Thayer had commissioned her to tell me so. She looked at me with that cryptic smile of hers. She'd like you to do so, I'm sure, she finally remarked and pirouetted away. Though it didn't come off, owing to my bashfulness, it was then that Miss Dodge appropriated the silk bodice, and Providence, taking pity on Miss Thayer's forced inactivity, sent along March, a young fellow reading for the army, with whom she had great doings. She fooled him to the top of his bent, sat on his knee, gave him a lock of her hair, which, having no scissors handy, she burned off with a cigarette taken from his mouth, and got him to offer her marriage. Then she turned round and laughed in his face, and took up with the Dr. Weber, a cousin of the Baron's, under the other man's very eyes. You never saw anything like the unblushing coolness with which she would permit March to catch her in Weber's arms. Come, Campbell protested. Aren't you drawing it rather strong? On the contrary, I'm drawing it mild, as you'll discover presently for yourself, and then you'll thank me for forewarning you. For she makes love, desperate love, mind you, to every man she meets, and goodness knows how many she hasn't met in the course of her career, which began presumably at the age of ten in some American hotel or watering place. Look at this. Mayne fetched an alpenstock from the corner of the hall. It was decorated with a long succession of names, which ribbon-like were twisted round and round, carved in the wood. Read them, insisted Mayne, putting the stick in Campbell's hands. You'll see they're not the names of the peak she has climbed, or the town she has passed through. They're the names of the men she has fooled. And there's room for more. There's still a good deal of space, as you can see. There's room for yours. Campbell glanced down at the Alpenstock, reading here a name, there an initial, or just a date, and jerked it impatiently from him onto a couch. He wished with all his heart that Maine would stop would talk of something else, would let him get away. The young girl had interested him so much, he had felt himself so drawn towards her, he had thought her so fresh, so innocent. But Maine, on the contrary, was warming to his subject, was enchanted to have someone to listen to his stories, to discuss his theories, to share his cynical amusement. I don't think, mind you, he said, that she is a bit interested herself in the men she flirts with, I don't think she gets any of the usual sensations from it, you know. I think she just does it for devilry, for a laugh. Sometimes I wonder whether she does it with an idea of retribution. Perhaps some woman she was fond of, perhaps her mother even, who knows, was badly treated at the hands of a man. Perhaps this girl has constituted herself the nemesis for her sex, and goes about seeing how many masculine hearts she can break by way of revenge. Or can it be? that she is simply the newest development of the new woman, she who in England preaches and bores you, and in America practices and pleases. Yes, I believe she's the American edition, and so new that she hasn't yet found her way into fiction. She's the pioneer of an army coming out of the West, 
that's going to destroy the existing scheme of things and rebuild it nearer to the heart's desire. Oh, damn it all, Maine, cried Campbell, rising abruptly. Why not say at once that she's a wanton and have done with it? Who wants to hear your rotten theories? And he lighted his candle without another word and went off to bed. 3. It was four o'clock, and the baron's boarders were drinking their afternoon coffee, drawn up in a circle round the hall fire. All but Campbell, who had carried his cup away to a side table, and with a book open before him, appeared to be reading assiduously. In reality, he couldn't follow a line of what he read. He couldn't keep his thoughts from Miss Thayer. What Maine had told him was germinating in his mind. Knowing his friend as he did, he could not on reflection doubt his word. In spite of a much superficial cynicism, Maine was incapable of speaking lightly of any young girl without good cause. It now seemed to Campbell that instead of exaggerating the case, Maine had probably understated it. The girl repelled him today as much as she had charmed him yesterday. He asked himself with horror, what had she not already known, seen, permitted? When now and again his eyes travelled over perforce to see where she sat, her red head leaning against Mrs. Dodge's knee, seeming to attract and concentrate all the glow of the fire, his forehead set itself in frowns, and he returned with an increased sense of irritation to his book. I'm just sizzling up, Nanny, Miss Thayer presently complained in her childlike, drawling little way. This fire is too hot for anything. She rose and shook straight her loose tea gown created in Paris, which would have accused the Duchess of willful extravagance. She stood smiling round a moment, pulling on and off with her right hand the big diamond ring which decorated the left. At the sound of her voice, Campbell had looked up. Now his cold and friendly eyes encountered hers. He glanced rapidly past her, then back to his book. But she, undeterred with a charming, sinuous movement and a frou-frou of trailing silks, crossed over towards him. She slipped into an empty chair next to his. I'm going to do you the honour of sitting beside you, Mr. Campbell, she said sweetly. It's an honour I've done nothing whatever to merit, he answered without looking at her, and turned the page. The right retort, she approved, but you might have said it a little more cordially. I don't feel cordial. But why not? What has happened? Yesterday you were so nice. Ah, a good deal of water has run under the bridge since yesterday. But the river still remains as full, she told him, smiling. And still the sky is as blue. The thermometer has even risen six degrees. Out of doors today, I could feel the springtime in the air. You too love the spring, don't you? I know that from your books, and I wanted to tell you, I think your books perfectly lovely. I know them most all. I've read them away home. They're very much thought of in America. Only last night I was saying to Nanny how glad I am to have met you, for I think we're going to be great friends, aren't we, Mr. Campbell? At least, I hope so, for you can do me so much good, if you will. Your books always make me feel real good, but you yourself can help me much more. She looked up at him with one of her warm, narrow, red-brown glances, which yesterday would have thrilled his blood and today merely stirred it to anger. You overestimate my abilities, he said coldly, and on the whole, I fear you will find writers a very disappointing race. You see, 
They put their best into their books, so not to disillusion you too rapidly, he rose. Will you excuse me? I have some work to do. And he left there, sitting there alone. But he did no work when he got to his room. Whether Luli Thayer was actually present or not, it seemed that her influence was equally disturbing to him. His mind was full of her, of her singular eyes, her quaint intonation, her sweet, seductive praise. Yesterday such praise would have been delightful to him. What young author is proof against appreciation of his books? Today, Campbell simply told himself that she laid the butter on too thick, that it was in some analogous manner she had flattered up March, Anson, and all the rest of the men that Maine had spoken of. He supposed it was the first step in the process by which he was to be fooled, twisted round her finger, added to the list of victims who strewed her conquering path. He had a special fear of being fooled, for beneath a somewhat supercilious exterior, the dominant note of his character was timidity, distrust of his own merits, and he knew he was single-minded, one-ideaed almost. If he were to let himself go, to get to care very much for a woman, for such a girl as this girl, for instance, he would lose himself completely, be at her mercy absolutely. Fortunately, Maine had let him know her character. He could feel nothing but dislike for her, disgust even, and yet he was conscious how pleasant it would be to believe in her innocence, in her candour. For she was so adorably pretty. Her flower-like beauty grew upon him. Her head, drooping a little on one side when she looked up, was so like a flower bent by its own weight. The texture of her cheeks, her lips, were delicious as the petals of a flower. He found he could recall with perfect accuracy every detail of her appearance, the manner in which the red hair grew around her temples, how it was loosely and gracefully fastened up behind with just a single tortoise-shell pin. He recalled the suspicion of a dimple, which shadowed itself in her cheek when she spoke, and deepened into a delicious reality every time she smiled. He remembered her throat, her hands of a beautiful whiteness, with pink palms and pointed fingers. It was impossible to write. He speculated long on the ring she wore on her engaged finger. He mentioned this ring to Maine the next time he saw him. Engaged? Very much so, I should say, as I've got a fiancé in every capital of Europe, probably. But the ring man is the fiancé en titre. He writes to her by every mail and is tremendously in love with her. She shows me his letters. When she's had her fling, I suppose she'll go back and marry him. That's what these little American girls do, I'm told. So they're wild oats over here with us and settle down into Bon Ménagère over yonder. Meanwhile, are you having any fun with her? Aha, she presses your hand. The gesegnete Maltzeit business after dinner is an excellent institution, isn't it? She'll tell you how much she loves you soon. That's the next move in the game. But so far, she had done none of these things. But Campbell gave her no opportunities. He was guarded in the extreme, ungenial, avoiding her even at the cost of civility. Sometimes he was downright rude. That especially occurred when he felt himself inclined to yield to her advances. For she made him all sorts of silent advances, speaking with her eyes, her sad little mouth, her beseeching attitude. And then, 
One evening, she went further still. It occurred after dinner in the little green drawing room. The rest of the company were gathered together in the big drawing room beyond. The small room has two deep embrasures to the windows. Each embrasure holds two old faded green velvet sofas in black oaken frames, and an oaken oblong table stands between them. Campbell had flung himself down on one of these sofas in the corner nearest the window. Miss Thayer, passing through the room, saw him and sat down opposite. She leaned her elbows on the table, the laces of her sleeves falling away from her round white arms, and clasped her hands. Mr. Campbell, tell me what I have done. How have I vexed you? You have hardly spoken two words to me all day. You always try to avoid me. And when he began to utter evasive banality, she stopped him with an imploring, Don't! I love you. You know I love you. I love you so much I can't bear you to put me off with mere phrases. Campbell admired the well-simulated passion in her voice, remembered Maine's prediction, and laughed aloud. Oh, you may laugh, she said, but I am serious. I love you. I love you with my whole soul. She slipped around the end of the table and came close beside him. His first impulse was to rise. Then he resigned himself to stay. But it was not so much resignation that was required as self-mastery, cool-headedness, her close proximity, her fragrance. Those wonderful eyes raised so beseechingly to his made his heart beat. Why are you so cold, she said. I love you so. Can't you love me a little too? My dear young lady, said Campbell, gently repelling her, what do you take me for? A foolish boy like your friends Anson and March? What you are saying is monstrous, preposterous. Ten days ago you'd never even seen me. What has length of time to do with it, she said. I loved you at first sight. I wonder, he observed judicially and again gently removed her hand from his. So how many men you have not already said the same thing? I've never meant it before, she said quite earnestly, and nestled closer to him, and kissed the breast of his coat, and held her mouth up towards his, but he kept his chin resolutely high and looked over her head. How many men have you not already kissed even since you've been here? But there have not been many here to kiss, she exclaimed naively. Well, there was March. You kissed him. No, I'm quite sure I didn't. And young Anson, what about him? Ah, you don't answer. And then the other fellow, what's his name? Prendergast. You kissed him. But after all, what is there in a kiss, she cried ingenuously. It means nothing, absolutely nothing. Why, one has to kiss all sorts of people one doesn't care about. Campbell remembered how Maine had said she had probably known strange kisses since the age of ten and a wave of anger with her, of righteous indignation rose within him. To me, said he, to all right-thinking people, a young girl's kisses are something pure, something sacred, not to be offered indiscriminately to every fellow she meets. Ah, you don't know what you have lost. You have seen a fruit that has been handled, that has lost its bloom. You have seen primroses, spring flowers gathered and thrown away in the dust. And who enjoys the one or picks up the others? And this is what you remind me of. Only you have deliberately, of your own perverse will, tarnished your beauty. 
and thrown away all the modesty, the reticence, the delicacy which make a young girl so infinitely dear. You revolt me. You disgust me. I want nothing from you but to be let alone. Kindly take your hands away and let me go. He roughly shook her off and got up and then felt a moment's curiosity to see how she would take the repulse. Miss Thayer never blushed, had never, he imagined, in her life done so. No faintest trace of colour now stained the warm pallor of her rose-leaf skin, but her eyes filled up with tears. Two drops gathered on the underlashes, grew large, trembled an instant, and then rolled unchecked down her cheeks. Those tears somehow put him in the wrong, and he felt he had behaved brutally to her for the rest of the night. He began to find excuses for her. After all, she meant no harm. It was her upbringing, her genre. It was a genre he loathed, but perhaps he need not have spoken so harshly to her. He thought he would find a more friendly word for her the next morning, and he loitered about the Marzal, where the boarders came into breakfast as in a hotel just when it suits them, till past eleven. But the girl never turned up. Then, when he was almost tired of waiting, Miss Dodge put in an appearance, in a flannel wrapper, and her front hair twisted up in steel pins. Campbell judged Miss Dodge with even more severity than he did Miss Thayer. There was nothing in this weird little creature's appearance to temper justice with mercy. It was with difficulty that he brought himself to inquire after her friend. Luli is sick this morning, she told him. I've come down to order her some broth. She couldn't sleep any last night. Because of your unkindness to her, she's very, very unhappy about it. Yes, I'm sorry for what I said. I had no right to speak so strongly, I suppose, but I spoke strongly because I feel strongly. However, there's no reason why my bad manner should make her unhappy. Oh, yes, there's very good reason, said Miss Dodge. She's very much in love with you. Campbell looked at the speaker long and earnestly to try and read her mind, but the prominent blinking eyes, the cryptic physiognomy, told him nothing. Look here, he said brusquely. What's your object in trying to fool me like this? I know all about your friend, Maine has told me. She has cried wolf too often before to expect to be believed now. But after all, argued Miss Dodge, blinking more than ever behind her glasses, the wolf did really come at last, you know, didn't he? Luli is really in love this time. We've all made mistakes in our lives, haven't we? But that's no reason for not being right at last. And Luli has cried herself sick. Campbell was a little shaken. He went and repeated the conversation to Maine, who laughed derisively. Capital, capitally cried, excellently contrived. It quite supports my latest theory about our young friend. She's an actress, a born comedienne. She acts always and to everyone, to you, to me, to the Ritterhausens, to the Dodge girl, even to herself when she's quite alone. And she has a great respect for her art. She'll carry out her role, coute que coute, to the bitter end. She chooses to pose as in love with you. You don't respond. The part now requires that she should sicken and pine. Consequently, she takes to her bed and sends you her confidant to tell you so. Oh, it's colossal. It's famos. Four. If you can't really love me, said Luli Thea, and I know I've been a bad girl and don't deserve that you should, at least will you allow me to go on loving you? 
She walked by Campbell's side through the solitary uncared-for park of Schloss Altenau. It was three weeks later in the year, and the spring feeling in the air stirred the blood. All round were signs and tokens of spring, in the busy gaiety of bird and insect life, in the purple flower tufts which thickened the boughs of the ash trees, in the green young things pushing up pointed heads from amidst last season's dead leaves and grasses. The snow wreaths that had for so long decorated the distant hills were shrinking perceptibly away beneath the strong March sunshine. And there was every invitation to spend one's time out of doors, and Campbell passed long mornings in the park or wandering through the woods or the surrounding villages. Miss Thayer often accompanied him. He never invited her to do so, but when she offered him her company he could not, or at least did not, refuse it. May I love you? Say, she entreated. Wenn ich dich liebe, was geht's dich an? he quoted lightly. Oh no, it's nothing to me, of course. Only don't expect me to believe you, that's all. This disbelief of his was the recurring decimal of their conversation. No matter on what subject they began, they always ended thus. And the more sceptical he showed himself, the more eager she became. She exhausted herself in endeavours to convince him. They had reached the corner in the park where the road to the castle turns off at right angles from the road to Durendorf. The ground rises gently on the park side to within three feet of the top of the wall, although on the other side there's a drop of at least twenty feet. The broad wall top makes a convenient seat. Campbell and the girl sat down on it. At his last words she wrung her hands together in her lap, But how can you disbelieve me, she cried, when I tell you I love you, I adore you, when I swear it to you. And can't you see for yourself why everyone at the castle sees it? Yes, you afford the castle a good deal of unnecessary amusement, and that shows you don't understand what love really is. Real love is full of delicacy, of reticences, and would feel itself profaned if it became the jest of the servants' hall. I think it's not so much my love for you, said Luli gently, as your rejection of it which has made me talked about. No, isn't it rather on account of the favours you've lavished on all my predecessors? She sprang from the wall to her feet and walked up and down in agitation. But after all, surely mistakes of that sort are not to be counted against us. I didn't really think I was in love with Mr. March. Willie Anson doesn't count. He's an American too, and he understands things. Besides, he's only a boy. And how could I know I should love you before I had met you? And how can I help loving you now I have? You're so different from other men. You're good. You're honorable. You treat women with respect. Oh, I do love you so. I do love you. Ask Nanny if I don't. The way in which Campbell shrugged his shoulders clearly expressed the amount of reliance he would place on any testimony from Miss Dodge. He could not forget her, Why don't you make love to Luli addressed to a married man? Such a want of principle argued an equal want of truth. Luli seemed on the brink of weeping. Oh, I wish I were dead, she struggled to say. Life's impossible if you won't believe me. I don't ask you to love me any longer. I know I've been a bad girl, and I don't deserve that you should. But if you won't believe that I love you, I don't want to live any longer. Campbell confessed to himself that she acted admirably, but that the damnable iteration of the one idea became monotonous. He sought a change of subject. Look there, he said, close by the wall. 
What's that jolly little blue flower? It's the first I've seen this year. He pointed to where a periwinkle grew at the base of the wall, lifting its bright petals gaily from out of its dark, glossy leaves. Luli, all smiles again, picked it with childlike pleasure. Oh, if that's the first you've seen, she cried, you can take a wish. Only you mustn't speak until someone asks you a question. She began to fasten it in his coat. It's just as blue as your eyes, she said. You have such blue and boyish eyes, you know. Stop, stop, that's not a question. And seeing that he was about to speak, she laid her finger across his mouth. You'll spoil the charm. She stepped back, folded her arms, and seemed to dedicate herself to eternal silence, then relenting suddenly. Do you believe me? she entreated. What's become of your ring? Campbell answered irrelevantly. He had noticed its absence from her finger when she had been fixing in the flower. Oh, my engagement's broken. Campbell asked how the fiancé would like that. Oh, he won't mind. He knows I only got engaged because he worried so. And it was always understood between us that I was to be free if I ever met anyone I liked better. Campbell asked her what sort of fellow this accommodating fiancé was. Oh, he's all right, and he's very good, too. But he's not a bit clever, and don't let us talk about him. He makes me tired. But you're wrong, Campbell told her, to throw away a good, a sincere affection. If you really want to reform and turn over a new leaf, as you're always telling me, I should advise you to go home and marry him. What, when I'm in love with you? She cried reproachfully. Would that be right? It's going to rain, said Campbell. Didn't you feel the drop just then? And it's getting near lunchtime. Shall we go in? Their shortest way led through the little cemetery in which the dead and gone Ritterhausens lay at peace in the shadow of their sometime home. When I die, the Baron has promised that I shall be buried here, said Luli pensively, just here, next to his first wife. Don't you think it would be lovely to be buried in a beautiful, peaceful, baronial graveyard instead of in some horrid, crowded city cemetery? Maine met them as they entered the hall. He noticed the flower in his friend's coat. Ah, my dear chap, been treading the periwinkle path of dalliance, I see. How many desirable young men have I not witnessed led down the same broad way by the same seductive lady? Always the same thing. Nothing changed but the flower, according to the season. When Campbell reached his room and changed his coat, he threw the flower away into his stove. Had it not been for Maine, Miss Thayer might have triumphed after all, might have convinced Campbell of her passion, or have added another victim to her long list. But Maine had set himself as determinedly to spoil her game as she was bent on winning it. He had always the cynical word, the apt reminiscence ready whenever he saw signs on Campbell's part of yielding. He was very fond of Campbell. He didn't wish to see him fall a prey to the wiles of this little American siren. He had watched her conduct in the past with a dozen different men. He genuinely believed she was only acting now. Campbell, for his part, began to feel a curious and growing irritation in the girl's presence. Yet he didn't avoid it. He couldn't well, avo he couldn't well avoid it. She followed him about so persistently. But his speech began to overflow with bitterness towards her. He said the cruelest things. And then, remembering them afterwards when alone, he blushed at his brutalities. But nothing he said ever altered her sweetness of temper or weakened the tenacity of her purpose. His rebuffs made her beautiful eyes run over with tears. 
but the harshest of them never elicited the least sign of resentment. There would have been something touching as well as comic in this dog-like forgiveness, which accepted everything as welcome at his hands, had he not been imbued with Maine's conviction that it was all an admirable piece of acting. When for a moment he forgot the histrionic theory, then invariably there would come a chance word in her conversation which would fill him with cold rage. They would be talking of books, travel, sports, what not, and she would drop a reference to this man or to that. So-and-so had taken her to Bullier's. She had learned skating with this other. She was a capital shot. Hiram P. Ladd had taught her, and he got glimpses of long vistas of amorettes played in every state in America and in every country of Europe since the very beginning, when as a mere child elderly men, friends of her father's, had held her on their knee and fed her with sweetmeats and kisses. It was sickening to think of. It was pitiable. So much youth and beauty tarnished, the possibility for so much good thrown away. For if one could only blot out her record, forget it, accept her for what she chose to appear, a more endearing companion no man could desire. 5. It was a wet afternoon. Maine had accompanied his wife and the Baroness into Hamelin to take up a servant's character and expostulate with a recalcitrant dressmaker, explained to Campbell, and wondered what women would do to fill up their days were it not for the perennial villainies of dressmakers and domestic servants. He himself was going to look in at the English club. Wouldn't Campbell come too? There was a fourth seat in the carriage, but Campbell was in no social mood. He felt his temper going all to pieces. A quarter of an hour of Mrs. Maine's society would have brought on an explosion. He felt he must be alone. Yet when he had read for half an hour in his room and wondered vaguely what Luli was doing, he hadn't seen her since luncheon. She always gave him her society when he could very well dispense with it. But on a wet day like this, when a little conversation would be tolerable, of course she stayed away. Then there came down the long rittersal, the tapping of high heels, and the well-known knock at his door. Am I disturbing you? she asked, and his mood was so capricious that now, when she was standing there on his threshold, he thought he was annoyed at it. It's so dull, she said persuasively. Nanny's got a sick headache, and I daren't go downstairs, or the Baron will annex me to play Halma. He always wants to play Halma on wet days. And what do you want to do? said Campbell, leaning against the doorpost, and letting his eyes rest on the strange, piquant face in its setting of red hair. To be with you, of course. Well, said he, coming out and closing the door, I'm at your service. What next? What would you like to do? Shall I fetch over my pistols and we'll practice with them? You've no notion how well I can shoot. We couldn't hurt anything here, could we? The Rittersal is an immense room, occupying all the space on the first floor that the hall and four drawing rooms do on the floor below. Wooden pillars support the ceiling and divide the room lengthwise into three parts. Down the centre are long tables used for ceremonial banquets. Six windows look into the courtyard and six out over the open country. The centre pane of each window is emblazoned with a Ritterhausen shield. The sills are broad and low and cushioned in faded velvet. Between the windows hang family portraits and a fine stone-sculptured 16th-century fireplace and overmantel at one end of the Saal faces a magnificent black carved buffet at the other. 
Luli, bundling up her duchess tea gown over one arm, danced off down the long room in a very un-duchess-like fashion to fetch the case. It was a charming little box of cedar wood and mother of pearl, lined with violet velvet, and two tiny revolvers lay inside, hardly more than six inches long, with silver engraved handles. I won them in a bet, she observed complacently, with the Honourable Billy Thornton. He's an Englishman, you know, the son of Lord Thornton. I knew him in Washington two years ago last fall. He bet I couldn't hit a three-cent piece at twenty feet, and I did. Aren't they perfectly sweet? Now, can't you contrive a target? Campbell went back to his room, drew out a rough diagram, and pasted it down onto a piece of stout cardboard. Then this was fixed up by means of a penknife driven into the wood against one of the pillars, and Campbell, with his walking stick, laid down six successive times, measured off the distance required, and set a chalk mark across the floor. Luli took the first shot. She held the little weapon out at arm's length, pulled the trigger. There was the sharp report, and when Campbell went up to examine results, he found she had only missed the very centre by half an inch. Luli was exultant. I don't seem to have got out of practice any, she remarked. I'm so glad, for I used to be a very good shot. It was Hiram P. Ladd who taught me. He's the crack shot of Montana. What, you don't know Hiram P.? Why, I should have supposed everyone must have heard of him. He had the next ranch to my Uncle Samuel's, where I used to go summers, and he made me do an hour's pistol practice every morning after bathing. It was he who taught me swimming, too, in the river. Damnation, said Campbell under his breath then shot in his turn and shot wide. Luli made another bullseye, and after that a white. She urged Campbell to continue, which he sullenly did, and again missed. You see, I don't come up to your Hiram P. lad, he remarked savagely, and after a few more shots on either side, he put the pistol down and walked over to the window. He stood with one foot on the cushioned seat, staring out at the rain and pulling at his moustache moodily. Luli followed him, nestled up to him, lifted the hand that hung passive by his side, put it around her waist, and held it there. Campbell, lost in thought, let it remain so for a second, then remembered how she had doubtless done this very same thing with other men in this very room. All her apparently spontaneous movements, he told himself, were but the oft-used pieces in the game she played so skillfully. Let go, he said, and flung himself down on the window seat, looking up at her with darkening eyes. She sat meekly in the other corner and folded her offending hands in her lap. Do you know, your eyes are not a bit nice when you're cross, she said. They seem to become quite black. He maintained a discouraging silence. She looked over at him meditatively. I never cared a bit for Hiram P., if that's what you mean, she remarked presently. Do you suppose I care a button if you did? Then why did you leave off shooting and, and why won't you talk to me? He vouchsafed no reply. Luli spent some moments wrapped in thought. Then she sighed deeply and recommenced on a note of pensive regret. Ah, if only I'd met you sooner in life. I should be a very different girl. The freshness with which her quaint, drawling enunciation lent to this time-dishonoured formula made Campbell smile. Then, remembering all its implications, his face set in frowns again. Luli continued her discourse. You see, said she, I never had anyone to teach me what was right. My mother died when I was quite a child, and my father has always let me do exactly as I pleased, so long as I didn't bother him. Then, I've never had a home, but have always lived around in hotels and places, all winter in New York or Washington, 
and summers out at Long Branch or Saratoga. It's true we own a house in Detroit on Lafayette Avenue that we reckon as a home, but we don't ever go there. It's a bad sort of life for a girl, isn't it? She questioned, pleadingly. His mind was at work. The loose threads of his angers, his irritations, his desires were knitting themselves together, weaving themselves into something overmastering and definite. The young girl, meanwhile, was moving up towards him along the seat, for the effect which his sharpest rebuke produced on her never lasted more than four minutes. She now again possessed herself of his hand, and holding it between her own, began to caress it in childlike fashion, pulling the fingers apart and closing them again, spreading up, palm downwards on her lap and laying her own little hand over it to exemplify the differences between them. He let her be. He seemed unconscious of her proceedings. And then, she continued, I've always known a lot of young fellows who've liked to take me round, and no one ever objected to my going with them, and so I went. And I liked it. And there wasn't any harm in it, just kissing and making believe and nonsense. And I never really cared for one of them. I can see that now, when I compare them with you, when I compare what I felt for them with what I feel for you. Oh, I do love you so much, she said. Don't you believe me? She lifted his hand to her lips and covered it with kisses. He pulled it roughly away, got up, walked to the table, came back again, stood looking at her with somber eyes and dilating pupils. I do love you, she repeated, rising and advancing towards him. For God's sake, drop that damned rot, he cried with sudden fury. It wearies me, do you hear? It sickens me. Love, love, my God, what do you know about it? Why, if you really loved me, really loved any man, if you had any conception of what the passion of love is, how beautiful, how fine, how sacred, the mere idea that you couldn't come to your lover fresh, pure, untouched as a young girl should, that you had been handled, fondled and God knows what besides by this man and the other, would fill you with such horror for yourself, with such supreme disgust. You would feel yourself so unworthy, so polluted, that, that by God, you would take up that pistol there and blow your brains out. Luli seemed to find the idea quite entertaining. She picked the pistol up from where it lay in the window, examined it with her pretty head drooping on one side, looking at it critically and then sent one of her long, red-brown caressing glances up towards him. And suppose I were to, she asked lightly. Would you believe me then? Oh, well, then. Perhaps if you showed sufficient decency to kill yourself, perhaps I might, said he, with ironical laughter. His ebullition had relieved him, his nerves were calmed again. But nothing short of that would ever make me. With her little tragic air, which seemed so like a smile disguised, she raised the weapon to the bosom of her gown. There came a sudden sharp crack, a tiny smoke film. She stood an instant, swaying slightly, smiling certainly, distinctly outlined against the background of rain-washed window, of grey falling rain, the top of her head cutting into the Ritterhausen escutcheon. Then, all at once, there was nothing at all between him and the window. He saw the coat of arms entire, but a motionless inert heap of plush and lace and fallen wine-red hair lay at his feet upon the door. Child, child, what have you done? He cried with anguish, 
and kneeling beside her, lifted her up and looked into her face. When, from a distance of time and place, Campbell was at last able to look back with some degree of calmness on the catastrophe, the element which stung him most keenly was this. He could never convince himself that Luli had really loved him after all, and the only two persons who had known them both and the circumstances of the case sufficiently well to have resolved his doubts one way or the other held diametrically opposite views. Well, just listen then, and I'll tell you how it was, Miss Nanny Dodge had said to him impressively the day before he left Schloss Altenau forever. Luli was tremendously, terribly in love with you, and when she found that you wouldn't care about her, she didn't want to live anymore. As to the way in which it happened, you don't need to reproach yourself for that. She'd have done it anyhow. If not then, why later? But it's all the rest of your conduct to her that was so cruel. Your cold, complacent British unresponsiveness. I guess you'll never find another woman to love you as Lily did. She was just the darlingest, the sweetest, the most loving girl in the world. Maine, on the other hand, summed it up this way. Of course, old chap, it's horrible to think of. Horrible, horrible, horrible. I can't tell you how badly I feel about it. For she was a gorgeously beautiful creature. That red hair of hers, good Lord. You won't come across such hair as that twice in a lifetime. But believe me, she was only fooling with you. Once she had you in her hunting noose, once her buccaneering instinct satisfied, and she'd have chucked you as she did all the rest. As to her death, I've got three theories. No, two. For the first is that she compassed it in a moment of genuine emotion, and that, I think, we may dismiss as quite untenable. The second is that it arose from pure misadventure. You'd both been shooting, hadn't you? Well, she took up the pistol and pulled the trigger from mere mischief, and quite forgetting one barrel was still loaded. And the third is, it was just her histrionic sense of the fitness of things. The role she had played so long and so well now demanded. And it's the third theory I give the preference to. She was the most consummate little actress I ever saw. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, mother? What's the secret? That was The Pleasure Pilgrims by Ella Darcy. And it's sort of a wintry story. Um, I'm going to put it out in a couple of weeks, which will be in January, I think. So I'm sitting here just before Christmas, so we haven't had Christmas yet. But uh, by the time you hear this, there will have been a Christmas of sorts, depending on the restrictions. Again. So this is the second story of Ella Darcy that we've done on the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. The first one was uh, the Villa Lucienne. So that deals with the similar kind of um, very privileged, wealthy people of leisure who don't do much but go around and stay in big houses. In that case, it's in the south of France. In that case, there's actually a ghost. In this case, mm, well, is there a ghost? Presumably a little Luli returns as a ghost if we believe in that kind of thing. But uh, there, it isn't a supernatural story. I'd come across it in a reprint of The Yellow Book. I don't know if you know The Yellow Book was a very fin de siècle 
British publication with avant-garde stories and uh, there's a reprint of it that's uh, um, people like W.B. Yeats and all sorts of people wrote for it. Um, John Buchan. It was it was a literary magazine. Anyway, Ella Darcy wrote this and it was... I found it in the reprint. There you go. So, um, what is the story about? Well... I, I thought it's it's just a very it's a mood piece. Who wouldn't love to stay for months in an old German castle? And I think the first part of it, when we have uh, Campbell arriving and he's thinking ahead, she tells us that he is thinking ahead, and he imagines what's going to happen. He's been there before. His friend Maine, his so-called friend Maine, is there, and he's looking forward to long chats with him. Yeah, that's a bit of foreshadowing, isn't it? Because it's those long chats that cause all the trouble, as we later find out. And we have a bit of local colour, which is the Hamlin with the Pied Piper and the medieval town and the castle and the ice flows on the river and the German servant in his carriage. You know, it very much sets the scene, this first part. It's almost like Hogwarts, actually. Although, um, I wonder if J.K. Rowling read this story. You just never know, do you? You just never know. So Campbell is a, success, a successful novelist, but he's a funny fish. I later conclude that he is a prig, a cad, a fool, and a poor shot. So there's nothing much going for him, really, but he's it's through his eyes that we see the story unfold, and partly, possibly, some of the pleasure is that that of a haunted house story whereby the the american teenagers go into this cellar the basement and um we go don't go down there the lights don't work and you're like don't so you see this story unfold through the eyes of a fool and you're like no 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 what are you doing and in fact some of the pleasure of stories can be like this so campbell has these bizarre ideas i'm not actually sure if he's ever had a girl and um, but he has these highfalutin ideas of uh, love, which may be uh, Ella Darcy's commentary on romantic novelists, you know, or or, or, or a certain Victorian, I don't know if this is Edwardian actually, male attitude, you know, the the Madonna and the whore, if you don't mind me saying that, whereby you know women were put on a pedestal, and Campbell expects his women to be untouched and like un unfondled uh, fruit or whatever. Yeah, so the the interesting thing about the story as you go on is we have two views. We have Maine, who is utterly cynical and just won't believe anything. And, and I think even when Campbell is, is being swayed by uh, Luli, when she puts the flower on him, the, the periwinkle. I was going to say pumpernickel, but that's a different thing. And he's got it on his coat and he's kind of coming round and then Maine snorts at it and he throws it into the stove and that's symbolic of every time Campbell, we think Campbell may be seeing some sense. So of course the Maine has this cynical view that this is all put on and look what a little little um, wanton she is, she's just messing with you mate and uh, you know I've said many a time Men can be fools for beautiful women. Sometimes um, they spend their lives chasing beautiful women when these beautiful women are just messing them about. Now, I'm not talking anything personal here, obviously. That, of course, would have never happened to me, ever. Um, but, so we've got Maine and we've got, I suppose Nanny Dodge isn't quite the equivalent, but Nanny speaks up for her, for Luli. Um, Luli can actually speak for herself, so we don't we don't rely on her. Um, so, and and I think the clever thing about the story is there is no resolution. Ultimately, in the end, we're still 
we're still given these two diametrically opposing views, one from Nanny Dodge that Luli was absolutely in love. And, you know, she'd, she was just a young girl. We're given the history of uh, her upbringing. And so it's no surprise that she's a little bit stunted in, in you know, she's played and flirted because that's what she's known. But she, this is really the time it hits her, the true love. So that's uh, Nanny Dodge's version and Luli's version, which... We may choose to believe, or we may choose Maine's very cynical version that she's just a girl who likes to uh, entertain herself by breaking hearts. And Campbell, again, there's not much. Maine is an evil pig, as it turns out. Um, Ella Darcy gives us a, gives us a view into his life. She actually has to go to the ex, the extreme of stating that Maine believes what he's saying, because I think if she hadn't put that actually unconvincing paragraph in, we would have thought that actually it isn't Luli, or maybe Luli does enjoy breaking foolish men's hearts, but Maine enjoys also having his games, his wicked games. Um, that's a, I heard that um, Chris Isaac song, what a wicked game you play to make me feel this way. And actually, this is what the story's about, isn't it? Or is it? Mm. I'm not sure Luli was wicked. I choose to believe that she was truly in love with him, but then I'm a bit of a softy. What else is the story about? I actually think that it's about the differences between Americans and British people, two nations at least, two, divided by one common language. And at the beginning, um, the first comment, pretty early on, is about, like most British people, this is him in the carriage, he was tremendously shy and perhaps that's how the British choose to see their reserve with others. You know, their famous reserve, our famous reserve, because I'm pretty reserved. You know, we choose to see it as a noble shyness, if you like. And then at the end, uh, Nanny Dodge talks about the cold complacency of unresponsiveness of the British. And I suppose those are two views that you might take of it. And it reminded me, I don't know if you remember, there was a, an English nanny in Boston, I think, Louise Woodward in the 1990s. And she was, um, I don't know if she was convicted or acquitted. I think she was acquitted of shaking a baby to death. She was the nanny and she was a, a young girl with not much experience. And she'd gone over to the States and taken up this position. And I remember the coverage at the time and I think it, it, the, there's an article on it I've put in the notes in the New Yorker about this and uh, how Woodward behaved in a very British manner. So she was reticent. She sat there with her head down. She was deferential to the judge because that's what you do in, in England, certainly. You give deference to those who are better than you socially. And you, you know, traditionally, not everybody does this, obviously, but this was the way of it. And so she was behaving in an appropriately modest manner. Whereas this article points out in the States, if you're honest and oh, you've got nothing to hide, you stand up there tall and proud and you meet the, the judge's eye because you're his equal and you tell it straight and you've got nothing to be afraid of. Woodward, this nanny, is behaving in a very appropri 